welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Jordan Hoffman. I'm a fellow in cardiothoracic surgery at the University of Colorado, and I'll be bringing you another episode in the TSRA podcast series on cardiac and thoracic surgery. We are joined today by the esteemed Dr. John Mitchell, Professor of Cardiothoracic Surgery and Section Chief of General Thoracic Surgery at the University of Colorado and National Jewish Health. Dr. Mitchell has a special interest in minimally invasive operative techniques for the treatment of complications related to advanced pulmonary infections. Today, we will be discussing the history and evolution of the field of general thoracic surgery as it relates to mycobacterial disease of the lung. Dr. Mitchell, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Can you briefly take us through the progression of surgical options for pulmonary TB from drainage therapy and thoracoplasty to collapse therapy and finally resection? Well, certainly. I, I think now, uh, just to jump to the modern era, uh, pulmonary resection is the primary treatment method used on a surgical basis for these patients with tuberculosis. People now, in this day and age, with drug-sensitive TB rarely need surgical intervention. Usually, the only time one would intervene is for a complication of prior tuberculosis. However, people with drug-resistant TB, either multi-drug-resistant or extensively drug-resistant tuberculosis, are often candidates for surgery. How were drainage procedures approached by surgeons before the widespread use of radiology? The use of an LOSR flap or LOSR procedure was devised in the mid-1930s by Leo LOSR, who was the, a surgeon at Stanford, to create a one-way valve between the pleural space and the outside world. It was utilized to drain tubercular empyema. We use a modification of that today for any sort of chronic pleural sepsis with an epithelialized opening that we still term an LOS or flab, but in its original configuration it was designed specifically for tubercular empyema. Another uh, drainage procedure that is sometimes still employed today was also devised in the 1930s by a surgeon from uh, Naples, Italy named Minaldi. This procedure allows for a cavernostomy into a fixed cavity within the lung to drain the cavity in the setting of patients for whom resection is not a possibility. It seems that the consequence of many of the historical operations were worse than the disease itself. Did the benefit of a chance at cure dramatically outweigh the morbidity associated with early surgical techniques? I think it's hard for us in North America in this day and age to realize what a, a terrible disease tuberculosis was beginning in the Industrial Revolution and extending well into the 20th century. The initial treatment options were really pretty limited and hence people were sent to sanatoria where they essentially rested a lot, ate well, and obviously had a lot of fresh air. And while that made some improvement, there was still a lot of difficulties with the disease. The first deliberate attempt to treat tuberculosis surgically was with artificial or induced pneumothorax. This was devised in the 1880s and actually became prevalent starting in the 1890s. 
Sometimes, because of the plural adhesions present, induced pneumothorax would have limited utility, and methods were devised to divide the intraplural adhesions to improve the efficacy of the pneumothorax. Along this same time, people were starting to think about using lung resection for TB. There were a lot of issues uh, with this. Perhaps first and foremost, the safety of doing an intrathoracic operation. This was largely surmounted by Metzger and Auer in the mid-19-teens when they devised a method for endotracheal intubation. Regardless, the treatment of tuberculosis with surgical resection early on in the teens and 20s and even into the 30s was really a, a high-risk procedure, as you intimated. At that time, the surgeons would mass ligate the affected lobe and then often exteriorize it out of the wound, and then the lobe would slough over time. The reason they did that was they feared the inevitable bronchial fistula, and having uh, the lobe slough outside of the skin would make the bronchial fistula a bit easier to deal with. It was only when hilar dissection, individual ligation of structures within the hilum became common did the morbidity and mortality for lung resection for tuberculosis really begin to decline. This was spearheaded by a number of surgeons, including Edward Churchill, who was the chair of surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital. You mentioned sending patients to uh, sanatorium and fresh air. Is that one of the reasons that Denver became a large referral center for these patients? Well, there were a number of sanatoria across the country. One of the places where people were sent was to Denver at altitude, and National Jewish actually began as a TB sanatorium. There were other, obviously, uh, famous sanatoria throughout the country, including Saranac Lake in New York. The development of positive pressure ventilation and anesthesia parallels that of the development of invasive surgical techniques. Can you briefly talk about the development of anesthesia and ventilation allowing the field of thoracic surgery to progress? Sure. So intrathoracic surgery at the turn of the 20th century was, was difficult because of the problems once the pleural space was open, the lungs would collapse, ventilation was difficult. And this was addressed in a variety of ways. Most people are familiar with attempts at uh, negative pressure rooms or placing the patient's head within a box to help ventilate uh, and be in a different environment, literally, than the surgeon who is operating uh, within the chest. But it was Metzger who, as it turns out, was the first president of the AATS, and his associate, John Auer, uh, who were studying the physiologic effects of pneumothorax when they really realized that positive pressure ventilation or tracheal insufflation, as they termed it at that point, could surmount all of these issues. And uh, they devised uh, what we now know today as an endotracheal tube. And, and uh, with the development of this device, thoracic surgery became much, much safer. So how has the advent of antibiotic therapy changed the surgical management of TB? Well, so we've talked about surgical resection. I should mention that additionally, with the terrible results at early surgical resection, thoracic surgeons in America turned to collapse therapy rather than induce pneumothorax as a means of combating tuberculosis. 
This was championed by many people, but none more so than John Alexander, who was the head of thoracic surgery at the University of Michigan and a victim of tuberculosis himself. Dr. Alexander actually had a thoracoplasty performed in the early 1920s on himself. He advocated for a staged removal of ribs uh, to affect collapse to treat the tuberculosis. And he actually wrote two fairly considerable books on collapse therapy for TB, one published in 1925 and one in 1937. And at the time of his second book, in the late 1930s, he considered lung resection to essentially be a failed therapy for tuberculosis. Ultimately, he was proven to be wrong with the development of improved surgical techniques. Now, getting on to the antibiotic treatment, it wasn't until the late 1940s, and particularly in the 1950s and into the 60s, when INH and rifampin were developed, preceded by the use of streptomycin, that drug therapy for tuberculosis really came onto its own. And with that, by the 1970s, people had actually predicted the end of tuberculosis because the medical treatments were so successful. And it wasn't until the 1980s and 90s when drug-resistant tuberculosis became apparent that everyone realized that tuberculosis was going nowhere but was here to stay. So you talk about drug-resistant TB emerging in the 1980s and 1990s. It seems like that parallels the AIDS epidemic. Has that changed the surgical management of TB? Well, everyone knows tuberculosis is not a huge problem in the United States, primarily due to the excellent public health efforts throughout the country. Every TB case is tracked. Patients are insured treatment, even if it's at the expense uh, of the individual states. But worldwide, TB remains a huge problem. Over 9 million people contract TB every year, and it's estimated the prevalence of tuberculosis is in up to one-third of the world's population. Now, the influence of HIV and AIDS is particularly apparent in sub-Saharan Africa, where significant numbers of individuals have HIV and also TB and often drug-resistant tuberculosis. So I would say that the presence of HIV and AIDS has had a significant impact in the battle against tuberculosis. Have you seen more patients being referred to you because of multidrug-resistant organisms over organisms that can be more easily treated with the medication we have? Well, first off, in terms of drug-resistant tuberculosis, the most important thing is to actually identify it because the recognition or identification of significant drug resistance allows one to prescribe an appropriate drug regimen for the patient. If it goes unrecognized, then the treatment is doomed to fail. So recognition of significant drug resistance is, is paramount. Once that is recognized, uh, the World Health Organization has a very specific set of criteria and steps to plan for an adequate drug re regimen. I can't go into all the details about it, but it involves multiple classes of drugs, trying to get at least four or five drugs that will work against the offending organism, and then an adequate length of treatment to effect cure.
Have minimally invasive techniques made physicians more willing to refer treatment failures earlier for surgical intervention? Well, first, the question of when should one intervene surgically has to, has to be discussed. So often, even with drug-resistant TB, people can be cured with adequate drug regimens alone. And the question about whether to employ adjunctive surgical treatment or resection really comes down to the patient, the pattern of parenchymal disease, and whether the individual clinicians feel that if a focal lesion, say a cavity, is present, that removal of the cavity will incrementally improve the cure rate. So as we've moved from treating the disease itself to treating the complications from having a mycobacterial infection, have the surgical techniques also evolved? Well, we're really talking about two things when we talk about surgery and tuberculosis. One is to affect cure or to assist in cure of the patient. So surgery in that role, as I mentioned previously, is an addition to the ongoing medical therapy. Uh, and in those cases, the goal is to affect cure, render the patient culture negative, and eventually stop the, uh, the medical therapy. That's different than treating a complication of tuberculosis. So, for example, uh, someone who develops a post-tubercular stricture, which we occasionally see in this country, those sort of problems are different and are treated in a more standard fashion. So, in the example given, uh, someone with a tubercular stricture may respond to dilation and local treatment, but often ultimately come to resection if endoscopic therapy cannot be successful. We talked earlier about the heaviest burden of TB being found outside the United States in developing countries. Given your experience practicing thoracic surgery abroad, have you noticed that the physicians in other countries are following the WHO guidelines and referring treatment failures or complications of the disease, or are they a little more eager to refer patients earlier at a chance for cure? Well, first off, I think physicians approach treatment of tuberculosis differently in different parts of the world. So the way that a patient might be treated in the United States is often very different than how a patient might be treated in Russia or in Africa or anywhere else. Second, the surgeons, if they get involved, often employ different methods even still to surgically intervene. So whereas in the United States, uh, we often, if we get involved, will employ resectional therapy. In other parts of the world, say in Russia, collapse therapy is still utilized. So I think it depends on the locality. It depends on the current environment and the, the burden of the, the number of patients that need to be treated. Certainly what we can do in North America often can't be replicated in other parts of the world. Finally, you had previously mentioned minimally invasive techniques. We try to do that here in mycobacterial disease whenever possible, but in other parts of the world that is not employed as frequently as, as here. Okay, well thank you Dr. Mitchell for speaking with us today and giving us this unique historical perspective into the evolution of thoracic surgery. Thanks for having me.